Thanks for joining us in our series on the book of Ephesians. In this letter, we get a thorough view of God's cosmic plan of reconciliation and reunification in Jesus Christ. Its truths are vital to the Christian's understanding of personhood and the church. Cornerstone exists to declare and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people complete in Him. Good morning, everyone. Let's go ahead and turn to Ephesians 6.10. In Ephesians 6.10 this morning through 13 will be our text for preaching, but we're going to read all of 10 through 20 together uh, and set out our context. So as you're turning there, just want a quick reminder. Um, we, we said this last week at our members meeting, but we are thankful for the work that Stephanie's been doing for our children putting together videos and now actually doing a class time for this. Uh, we're very appreciative and we recognize the great service it is to our body. But we also realize that you have done a good job of understanding the rest of us as we have a lot of children in here and forbeared with one another. This is a good gift to the rest of the body that we give as we forbear. Some are more happy about it than others. I understand that. But again, this is a way for us to love one another in the midst of this difficult time. That being said, we are going to start transitioning to more stuff, more nursery, uh, some other children's class, but Stephanie can't do all of that. <laughs> um, so we need to serve one another as well. Jordan's put out on Realm a couple different invites and um, some requests for some help. It is a service both to our Lord, obviously, but to one another as we consider serving one another as we give in that rotation to help out with our children's ministry, both with nursery, uh, but also as we teach them the gospel. So I just put that out there to remember uh, if you can respond somehow. We understand that there are circumstances that make it not possible for you, no problem, but we do call you as brothers and sisters to one another to serve the body. So we'll start with there. Uh, I don't know if you're like me or not, but I thought like after the holidays that we'd probably like settle down into some sort of normal. I don't know if normal is a word that we're going to use for our everyday life for quite some time here. Uh, like I, I remember my kids really thought that like maybe 2021, like on January 1st, COVID might be gone completely. And then we're like, what happened? I don't know how it stayed around. Um, but in the midst of all that, we recognize that the things that don't change are his word and his work in the world, that we essentially are the same people in Christ, that our, our identity has not changed because of our circumstances. So as we come together today and we open up the scriptures together, we look to the thing that is foundational for us, the truth of the word for guidance, even as we talk about this next week and what we're gonna do. So let's go ahead and read Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. This is God's word. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, 
Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Let's pray together. Lord, we recognize that this morning as we come to your word, we come to a holy text, one that does not change. These truths are not something that we figured out, but are given to us. They are revealed to those who trust you. Lord, we come with so much baggage from the week, so much, whether it's struggle or loss, pain and struggle and anxiety, and yet we come now, Lord, to your word and ask you that you would open our eyes, that you would open our ears, and that we would believe the truth about who you are. I pray for your Holy Spirit to work in my heart, in our hearts together as a congregation, as those who are looking on, uh, whether it's live cast or later on, I pray that you would work your Holy Spirit in these things and through the scriptures that you would proclaim the truth. We need you, God. So we call out for your great help, knowing, Father, that you will receive all glory and honor. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we have finished up the household code. That's 522 through 69. Uh, now we're getting ready to enter into verse 10, the start of a call to spiritual warfare. And this section is pretty big, so I will not preach the whole thing today, all of what we read. I'll just kind of start with the 10 through 13, which really is the introduction to this section. But I believe it actually warrants its own sermon because the, what we're doing here is a little bit of a shift from what we've been doing so far in this text. What I mean is that Paul is not haphazardly going from one section, uh, one subject, to another one altogether. We need to understand then what Paul's message is and why he would do this at this point. Well, let me start with an illustration, if I will. Does anyone here, and you don't have to put your hands up, it's okay, does anyone here ever daydream? or get lost in their thoughts and their thinking about what's going on. And all of a sudden you can be doing a task and you're completely miles away or maybe years away, something completely different. Uh, I, I admit that I can sometimes be lost in my own thoughts. Um, parents, don't look too mad about it, your children or your husbands. Um, but remember, I can remember some of these things, I, I, I'll think about work and I'll think about getting things done, things I haven't done yet. And, and then I think about like philosophies of life and kind of play things out and go all this way and that way. Or I'll kind of replay some of the things that I've done in family vacations or fun uh, things I've done before, or different hunts that I've been on and remembering those moments again or things that I enjoy. Other times, it's more of uh, thinking about my children, what will happen as they grow up, and all these different things take me away so easily. And I don't know if you're like me, this, this used to happen a lot when I was in high school. A lot when I was sitting in class, taking notes, sitting there, making sure I was taking notes, uh, following along with the teacher, but really making sure that I got all the notes so I could study later, because in the moment, I was not there. I was taking the notes to make sure I got it, but I was far away. And I remember on several occasions, I would do this and then I would just kind of finally come back to earth. And I didn't know where we were. I had no idea. I was writing down the notes, but I was like in a whole new section from where I thought we were at at the beginning of the lesson. And it seemed so abrupt and like, oh man, I think I totally missed what's going on. Uh, the same thing happens, I will just admit it for me, when I'm doing my Bible reading. I'm going along. Have anyone ever done this where you're, where you're reading along and you kind of just like drift off a little bit? And, you're like, and I don't know how. It's amazing that we can read and think about something completely different, but I can do it. And I have a feeling I'm not the only one. 
And the struggle is real because all of a sudden you come back and you're like, oh man, it's Holy Scripture. Should I go back and read all of that again, right? But sometimes it's not only, obviously it's, it's our own fault for doing that kind of stuff. But there's other times when we're reading along in Scripture and maybe even we're paying attention, but we come to like an, a different section and it seems like it's almost unconnected from what I was just reading before. And oftentimes, uh, I think this experience is not too far away from what we're, what we're used to because we kind of think about the Bible as an anthology. What I mean is like a, a, like a group of writings kind of scattered around one specific theme, um, but we, we, sometimes we don't really know how it all weaves together properly. I bring this up because I think that this is kind of at first glance how we think about this passage. We've been talking about the household code and seeing God talk about the roles that we're to play and responsibilities, how we're to understand these things and submit to him. And as we do so, we show our the reverence to Christ as we do these things. And all of a sudden, we're talking about the devil, cosmic powers, these forces of evil. And he's introducing like seemingly a totally different thing. Um, it, that, that's what's happening here. I mean, especially when we get to these, these first few words, right? He says, be strong in the Lord. Now we know that theme and it seems biblical, Remember it from Joshua. In our study in Joshua, he told Joshua, be strong and of good courage, all the way back in Joshua. He did the same thing about David, actually. In uh, 1 Samuel 30, David is one who has found strength in the Lord. And then we get to Zechariah. He even talks about it to his people who are in exile and says that his people, that I will make them strong in the Lord. And so we, we, we think this makes sense. It's a good teaching. We understand it, and we can just slide right into it and say, okay, I can learn this thing. But I would, I would just like us to stop for a moment and try to reckon these two together. How we've been working in this situation over here and now all of a sudden we're sliding into spiritual warfare. How does the household code and that go together? Or even the bigger picture, how does this section fit into the whole of the book? Because if you look down at your Bible, you're going to see where we are. We're at the end. We're at the end of the book. This is not an appendix that he threw on there. Although at first glance we might think so. He is building, he's a good writer, he's building his argument the whole time in this letter. And so as Bible readers, it's actually very important that we think through what he's doing here and why he would do this once we get to these verses, chapter 6, 10 through 20. Again, let's try to get this right. I, I, what I want to do is kind of back up a little bit and kind of give us a running start and see how we got here. By this time, you're probably sick of hearing this phrase, but chapter 4 is the turning point in the book. The first three chapters are all about Paul telling us who we are, saints, those who have been redeemed by God. If you remember, he kind of pulled back the curtain of eternity and helping us to see who we really are in God's work of redemption for us. In chapters one through three, we are given details of God's perspective in our salvation. And despite what you and I experience, and despite our wrestling in faith and to believe the gospel, that idea of faith and repentance and that struggle, Paul shows us that our salvation has been settled long ago on a foundation that is immovable by much greater power than ourselves. We have no grounds for self-confidence, but that doesn't mean that we're unsure or doubtful of our position. In this section, at the very beginning of the letter, we realize that we have the strongest, most beautiful, most hopeful description of our salvation. In it, we're reminded of our identity, and we are emboldened to believe that God has made us his own long before you and I ever wrestled with faith. As we move into chapter 4 then, 
we're called to live according to who we are. If you remember that, the first three chapters are, hey, this is who you are in Christ. Now, chapter four through six, this is how you live as one who is in Christ. In chapter four, one, he said, Paul, he tells us to, to walk in a manner that's worthy of our calling. This is a special call to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And as he goes on in 4.17, he tells us not to walk as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their minds. He goes into extensive detail concerning what it means for us to deny the flesh and to walk as a body of believers according to the Spirit. And then when we get to 5.1 and 2, he says something even more drastic. He tells us to imitate God. He says, walk um, in love as Christ loved us. Then he explains this by, by showing our deep-rooted selfishness and self-love and shows us what it is like to be like Jesus and love God and love others properly. In 5.8, he goes on. He tells us that we are to walk as children of light. Our job is to walk in this light and then shine this light on others so that they too would be children of light. And then most recently in 5.15, that last walk, he says we are supposed to walk not as unwise people, but as wise ones. He shows us that this means that we are to be filled with the Holy Spirit and live in a completely different manner than when we did not have the Spirit. And as we've been learning over the past few weeks, uh, the household code spells out explicit roles that we are to play and responsibilities so that we understand both authority and submission and act in those things out of reverence for Christ. But then we get to our passage today, 610. And we start to hear about the spiritual warfare. And Paul talks about the devil and cosmic powers and spiritual forces. And it's almost as if he's changing subjects. Almost like, okay, you had to do these things in the last two and a half chapters. Now let me give you a new thing here to kind of go forward on. It's like he's called us before to live godly lives in our very normal life, right? Like the everyday kind of stuff to live it that way. But now he's going to give us something else where we're supposed to live in the spiritual realm. And we're supposed to somehow engage in this instead, or at least two. And in our thinking, this is another imperative. It's a different command. It's another exhortation to live out who we are in Christ. But I want to stop here for a moment, because I believe that we have not grasped the weight of what Paul has called us to in these last two and a half chapters. I don't think that we mean to, but I think we think too highly of ourselves. What I mean is that we think that since Paul has commanded it, we must be able to do it on our own. That must be what is, is, is be happening here. And, and, and sometimes we don't believe in our own weakness. Sometimes we don't believe in our own sinfulness. Uh, and most importantly here, I think sometimes we don't believe that we have an enemy. Uh, most of us think that we can somehow do what Paul has called us to on this, in the second half of the book by ourselves. We don't mean to. But that's kind of what we think that that's what Christian discipleship is about. We're supposed to engage in this way. Now, we've had along the way a few points of reckoning. If you remember, in the sermon I preached on um, children and parents, we had three questions, if you kids remember that. We asked children, how are you to treat your parents? And then to the adults, we said to the parents, we said, parents, how are you to treat your children? But the third question we asked after learning these things was, how in the world can we possibly do this, this obedience that he calls us to? And if you remember, the answer that Paul gave to us was from Ephesians 5.18. He's explaining that our obedience can only flow from a person who was filled with the Holy Spirit, an obedient Christian. And that's the right answer. Still today, it's the right answer, praise God. 
But in the flow of Paul's commands, it's really not a huge point that sticks out. It's more subtle. It's almost along the way he tells us this. He assumes it kind of out loud that we understand that our dependence on the Spirit works itself out in obedience. But after he's through all these exhortations, after he's been going through this whole thing, he brings us back to our need, our dependence. Here we are. And he says, after he's through giving some of these details on Christian living in these past two and a half chapters, he kind of turns back to tell us, this is how you do it. It doesn't look like that at first glance, but I'm just telling you, it's like a lot of the guys in here probably are like me. You like to surf YouTube to figure out how to do things, or you like those instructables that kind of give you the different things on how to do the thing that you're set out to do. You know you're supposed to do this thing, and you and your wife have maybe agreed to kind of set this thing up or do this renovation. You don't exactly know how to do it, but you know you can do it, so you kind of look through and you get the how-tos. In a sense, this is Paul helping us understand the scope of our project and then telling us how to do it. He's going to show us it's very much real here. He's already told us what to do, and he's told us why to do it. But now he's going to show us how to get it done. This last section of the book is not a new set of commands. We may think it is, but it's not. He is certainly commanding us to do something, but it's not a new task. It's actually the way in which we ought to do the things that he's already instructed us to do. In verse 10, Paul comes right out with a command. But as he explains it, we watch as he draws back the curtain on reality. And he says, see what's really going on back here? I, I love this. Because he did this at the beginning of it, right? He, he showed us what happened before we ever existed. He showed us in Christ what he decided he would do. The eternal counsel of his will kind of showed us those amazing things. Now we're in the midst of the fray, in the midst of trying to obey what he's told us to do, and he says the same thing. He's going to pull back the curtain and say, this is what's going on, so let me show you how to do the things that I've told you you ought to do as a Christian. Look at verse 10. He says, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Guys and, and, and ladies too, just, just, just see this. He doesn't say, hunker down and be tough. Get some grit. Pull yourself up by your bootstrap. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say you need to get strong on your own. He doesn't say start working out so that you will be ready for the opening day of the season. He doesn't say that here. Instead, he says, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. This is a really humbling thing if we're really honest about it. I think one of the things that's so hard for us is that we want to be able to say we did it. But just to be honest here, we all know failure. We've all seen it in our own lives. And I'll just remind you of that failure because when we look to the cross, we see that we never measured up. Never. We look to the cross, the second person in the Trinity had to die because we didn't measure up. This is a glorious truth because there has been grace given for you and me. And so as we recognize that, we never could do it. We start to recognize that he is the only one that would ever give us the ability to have a relationship with God, but here is the strength to continue to do what we're supposed to do, only ever found in God. He doesn't say, like, be strong, you know, to, you know, to just on your own and, and pull yourself up by your bootstraps, but rather points it right back to God. And when we, when we first read these words, be strong in the Lord, we think that he's telling us kind of to brace ourselves, be strong, like flex, be ready to go. Uh, but um, that's not exactly right. Like be strong in the Lord means be strong when it comes to doing good deeds. We kind of think that's what he means here. 
Be strong when it's time to do righteousness. Be strong in doing good. But the rest of the sentence makes it clear that that's not what he is doing here. He says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. He's making it very clear what's going on here. Now, in English, we don't see it quite as well. We see like an active verb, be strong. But it's actually here, it's a, it's a, I'm not trying to be Greeky on you, but like it's a middle passive verb, which means one of two things. Either it's do this thing unto yourself or have someone else do it to you. And as we read the rest of this, it gives us all the clues that we need to understand that it's the second of those two things. That idea that we actually found back in 5.18. Remember we saw this before? In chapter 5, we came across a passive verb as well. He told us to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now he tells us to be strengthened in the, in the strength of the Lord. He's showing us, he's saying, go do something you can't do. It's, a, it's kind of a ridiculous command in one sense, but it shows our absolute need for God. It is a proclamation of grace and the gospel. It shows us our very need for the walking that we do day in, day out, that Paul has told us all through chapter four, five, and half through six here. He's saying, you can't do it. But as you are strengthened in the Lord, you can. There is hope and grace found in God alone. We've seen this before, again, like I said, but this is really not just a matter of us following a few commands and getting it right and having the formula. It really is complete dependence on God. That's faith. That means trusting him alone to be the one who can give us what we need to do this. Again, this is a matter of faith, submitting ourself to God for his strength. Look at verse 11. He goes on, put on the whole armor of God. Now, Paul's going to say this in verse 13 as well. And then later on, he's going to just kind of fill this whole thing out. It's a really great passage of scripture. It's a really great metaphor for us. And we're going to talk about this in the next coming weeks. But what I want you to see here is that it isn't our armor. He doesn't tell us to uh, collect the medals and make it all together and figure out how we can get this together and put it on ourselves. This is the armor of God. The whole thing is his and his alone. Uh, and we'll come back to this idea when we start putting these pieces together, but at least we've got to see that it is God's strength and it's also God's protective provision for us that we need. Not our own. Not our own strength and making it possible for us to do it and not reaching back into our uh, locker in a sense to get our gear on, but rather to get that which is only from the Lord. He says in verse 11, then put on the whole armor of God. And he's going to make it crystal clear here that this is an impossible task. Because look what he says next. So that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Whoa. I mean, he does not say, be strong and put on your armor so that you can handle the temptations and the struggles that you'll deal with day in, day out. It's a hard life down there. No. He goes straight to the tempter, the adversary, the devil. He says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. He calls him out himself. He, he says that you need God's strength and protection against the, one of the most ancient, one of the most horrific, powerful beings ever created. That's the one he's talking about here. He says that we need God in order to somehow stand against the plots and schemes of the one who hates God and everything that is connected to him. And I, I just want to say this is not the Satan or the devil that we see like on the, the Match.com commercial of like the devil who dates 2020 and they're match made, you know, for together. That's perfect. And, like we sometimes think of like this big red guy with like horns and he's just kind of like an expressly amazing human, like in that he can just do a lot of stuff. That's not what we're talking about. 
We're talking about one of the most powerful creatures ever created. One who would blow our mind with the things that he can do. Nevertheless, he is a creature. But we are no match for him. No match for him whatsoever. We, as image bearers, as those who are people, we understand, are completely different in our makeup. And Paul says that we must stand against this one somehow. And he's showing us that it can only be done. These clever schemes of the devil, the only way we can ever live responsibly and properly as Christians in front of that is to draw on the strength and the protection of God. In verse 12, he makes it even clearer that this is not just one being who's after us, who's trying to trick us, who's trying to make us fall. It's a whole host or army of them. Look at this. He says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. And, and by the way, we all know that we actually do wrestle against flesh and blood. We know the struggles that we deal with that, of our evil society around us, right? But he says this. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces in the, of, he, of evil in the heavenly places. Now, if you remember, uh, I said that sometimes we don't even believe in uh, or we, we, we don't believe so well in our weakness and our sinfulness. But the truth is, probably for those who are serious Christians and have drawn near to Christ, you do know your own weakness. And you do know your own sinfulness. And you hate it. And you want to fight against it. And you want to, as Paul calls us to, mortify the deeds of the body. And you understand this. We want to take up arms against the inner man, the wickedness of our, our old man. And that's right. And it's biblical. Praise God, we should do that. Often we see our weakness and we, we understand, we believe in our sinfulness and we rightly hate it. But what we don't understand maybe is that we are not our only enemy. And we are not actually, as the saying goes, our worst enemy. There is one who is far greater and stronger who is out and hell-bent on destroying us. I don't know uh, that most of us really believe that we're struggling against spiritual for for forces of darkness but we are. Make no mistake, this is what's going on right now. This is what happens constantly. As, as, and again, they're not ever, ever present or omniscient. We're not saying that. They're creatures. But this warfare goes on constantly. We're in the midst of an ongoing struggle that is greater than just some sort of spiritual self-improvement. That's not the project that's going on here. We are in a struggle of this enormous and strong realm. So we need to reckon with this right away. Uh, we're devastated, even in ourselves, by our own choices, by our own self-deceit, by the problems that we've created for ourselves, by the, by the times that we fall for temptation, by these, all these different things of our inner man, and, and we hate it. We don't want this to continue. Again, we, 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 try, to, we try to become more self-disciplined and more self-controlled and really fight against this one that we look in the mirror every day and say, I want to put that old man to death and I want to live through Christ. And this is a right thing, like I said, in biblical. But I just want us to remember that we are not only fighting against humans. We're not only fighting against them, but we are engaged in spiritual warfare against a whole host, an army of those wicked, evil forces who hate God and who hate us. Paul isn't writing to tell us how to become better people, how to be more moral and acceptable in our society how to give a good example of what it means to be like a Christian. Oh, that's certainly part of it. Paul is helping us understand who we really are up against. He is saying, wake up. This is real. Let me pull this back and show you that your personal struggles are way harder than you actually think. They're way more devastating than you have any idea of. 
And, and by fact, by the way, you can't do it. You're not strong enough. You're not smart enough. You're not ancient enough. You don't know. These guys are clever, scheming, and hateful. And they will continue to do everything that they possibly can do against God as they rebel against him to defame and hurt God and his people. He talks here about rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness. And he sums it all up by calling them spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So, we'll just get it out there. What is he talking about? Who or what is he talking about? And I think I've kind of already played my cards here, but um, he's not talking about our government. He's not talking about the internet. He's not talking about the media that we, we, we imbibe not constantly. He's not talking about even wicked dictators throughout the ages. Although I will say, all of these are places that we do see spiritual darkness and wickedness all used against God. But what he's talking about here is an entire angelic army of demons who hate their position of submission and being ones who were created. They hate it. They're not satisfied with being servants and messengers of God, angels of, of the one who made them. They're not satisfied with this. They want autonomy. They want independence. They want their own glory. They do not want to submit to God and do all the things that he has called them to do. They want to do their own thing. They want control, and they do not want God's plan. Now, it's interesting, isn't it, though, that we just came out of learning about God's plan and roles and responsibilities and showing that these things completely help us understand and proclaim the authority of God and submission of all of his creatures. And yet we're now dealing with a whole group right here who do not want to submit to God, who desire to have their own authority, to have their own agenda, to make their own glory. Do, do, do you see the connection really quickly here? That means that when we see roles and responsibilities that are just rejected, we are seeing something as akin to demonic activity. Do you understand that? That's like really serious. I'm not calling out like some hoax. This is real. This is what we're seeing. A person who denies these things and rejects the work of God, even in roles and responsibilities, is doing that which is against God, against his plan. It is rebellious and it is demonic. They hate mankind. They don't want anything to do with him. They do not wish to fill their roles, fulfill their roles of submission. And it's a very helpful piece for us to understand and look onto them and say, be careful, brother and sister, that you might not see yourself doing the same things. And we point back to seeing, understanding what God is doing in his own people. And thus we see that the devil is both then in this, the father of lies that he perpetuates, but he also is a murderer. And briefly let me say also this. This passage doesn't necessarily give us all the specifics of what this looks like. A lot of us would be very interested to find out uh, what's going on. Like, how do, they, how do they tempt people? What are they doing? Or are they getting into people's brains? Are they getting into the computer? Or how's all this happening? We don't know necessarily. We don't have that spelled out here. Uh, people have taken guesses while they put different parts of Scripture together. One of my favorites is certainly C.S. Lewis's The Screwtape Letters. We understand that idea of how they're about destroying man, tempting him away, whether it's in, in hate or complacency or apathy. But I just want you to remember that all those things, although helpful sometimes, are just our ideas about what it might be. 
we do not know other than that we recognize that this is a whole host, an army of angelic beings that hate God and are out to destroy his people and him. And just, guys, that's enough. <laughs> what we need to do then is hear what Paul has to tell us and obey because he is helping us understand how to do this. Look at verse 13. He says, therefore, since this is all true, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Paul's told us to be strengthened in the power of God. He's told us that there's a whole host of evil enemies against us. And now he simply tells us to take up the armor of God so that we may be able to stand in the midst of the onslaught of the wicked powers that are wielded against us. We'll see that each piece of, of the armor, as we go through it these next two weeks, we're going to see how they play out in different metaphors and helping us understand what that means for us. The point in these things is not that we have every different little piece that's surrounding us to make sure every little piece is a, an exact replica of what it would be like in our modern day warfare or even the warfare here in this day. What it's trying to say for us here is that God has outfitted us with every single thing that we need to stand according to his word. What he's called us to, he supplied, both in strength and protective provision for us to be able to do. So why do we need this armor? Well, he already told us that we're not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces. But now he specifically tells us that we are supposed to put this on so that we are able to withstand and that we are able to stand. Now, I, I always think this is a weird English verse. I kind of trip myself up when I'm, when I'm reading it through. But those are the two infinitives that follow able. So let me just kind of make it a little bit simpler. Paul says that this armor should be put on so that we are able to withstand or oppose or resist and also to stand firm. Those are the things that he's saying here. He says that we must be able to withstand in the evil day. Now what's this evil day he's talking about? He speaks of our own darkness, of our time that we are living in. He speaks of many attacks that we experience in our day-to-day -day living. He speaks of our temptations and our trials. He isn't only speaking about a special day to come, although there certainly will be one. He speaks to the normal everyday evil. Think about Ephesians 5.16, right? We, we, we covered this. Paul says that Christians are to make the best use of our time because the days are evil. We're experiencing the beginning of the great battle in which our Lord will forever defeat his foes. We can be sure of this. But until then, right now, we actually occupy these evil days in which we take up the armor that Paul is talking about and trust God alone as we live the time that God has given to us on this earth. In this last phrase, we are called then to perseverance. In the end, we do all that we can and stand in the strength of our God and with his armor put on, and then we will only be able to stand as he has called us to do. In the end, if you remember, this isn't about you anyway. Of course we want to be strong, but it's his strength. Of course we want to be strong. We put on his armor. We do this out of trust and faith that he will protect, and he will do what's right. Even if, get this, if in our own time, we know pestilence and struggle and defeat and even death, there's something far greater at work here. Remember that we're talking about the intersection of these two realms, the earthly one that we can see so easily, but now we're understanding also what's happening in the heavenly realms those things that intersect and help us understand that we have to know how to do this because there's spiritual darkness that is against us, this battle, this warfare. Before we bring this final application, 
I just want to talk through one more thing. Paul doesn't call us to necessarily go out and wage specific war against the enemy. Jesus already did that and won. This is the beauty that we already saw in Ephesians 1. Paul prays for us in chapter 1. He prays that Christians would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. But then he, he makes it more clear. He talks about this power. He says that it is according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule, here we go, ready, and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. He did it. Christ has conquered in his own death and his resurrection from the grave and his ascension to the right hand of the Father. We realize that he has conquered his foes and we are forever settled in his work on the cross. But we know that he has not consummated his kingdom. There will be a day when he brings all things to their final end. We've learned this already in the book of Ephesians, actually. We know that he will bring this day to pass soon. There will be a day when he brings it to their final end. He will crush all rebellion. He will judge all unrighteous actions for all of our treasonous acts and those who have rebelled and not submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ. We actually look forward with great hope to that day because we know all things will be settled and Christ will reign as supreme king. We've reached the end of this intro. So, what do I want you to go away thinking about today? What's the message for us today? My desire is that you would hear the Spirit speak through these words of Paul in 10 through 13, and you would realize what you are up against. If you can get a glimpse of what you are up against, you will bow the knee to God over and over and over again, realizing that we've been given everything that we need to do what he's asked of us. Uh, we aren't entering into an imaginary world of dragons and cauldrons and magic and spells. I just want you to know, spiritual warfare isn't Christian LARPing. That's not what's going on here. I mean, we aren't entering that way. Spiritual warfare is understanding that trusting God and obeying God and every, every word, this everyday, almost like boring command type stuff that he's told us to do, that will be met with the fury of the evil one against us. He doesn't want any of that stuff done. He doesn't want to see faith. He doesn't want to see the gospel explained. He doesn't want to see us submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's terrible to him. That means that God wins. He doesn't want to see us walking by the fruit of the Spirit. He doesn't want us to be filled with the Holy Spirit. He doesn't want us to walk in the light. And so all the things that we've been talking about, he's against all of it. Do you realize that when we think about all the stuff that we covered from chapter 4, 5, and a little bit of 6 here, is all ways that we obey and walk in the Spirit by his strength. And as we do so, we are up against spiritual powers. I know that you don't see them. And I know that we think it's some sort of hocus-pocus magic stuff. No, no, no. It's as real as it can get. And it's happening all around us, all the time. We aren't entering just that imaginary world with the real deal. So every time that we attempt to fulfill our roles of submission, or every time that we seek to humbly and patiently bear with one another, enough to maintain unity with one another, or every time that we try to do honest work and share with one another in need, 
Every time that we listen to Paul's commands in these last couple chapters and rely on the Holy Spirit to move forward in obedience to God, we are met with opposition. We are met in spiritual battle. Every time that you doubt and struggle, these things make sense with what's going on here. You know why it's hard to obey all the stuff that we found in these last couple chapters? It's because the spiritual forces of evil are working against you. It's true. You may think that succumbing to lust or covetousness or bitterness or anger is just some little side problem that you have that's not that big of a deal. But brothers and sisters, it's much bigger than that. It's on the field of battle that you are at. These, these decisions that you're making are battlegrounds. They are. I, w- I want us to see that we are not, and we should not rest the rest of our, I'm sorry, we should not act in the rest of our earthly lives as if there's something else to come and we're looking forward to that and this time is just biding our time. We are in the midst of a battle. He is trying to help us shift our perspective to know that we must live with urgency. And when I say with urgency, I'm not talking about like uh, running around. I'm talking about understanding the position that we are in, stuff that we cannot see. And all the stuff he is calling us to, we can only do in the strength of the Lord. So as we go through these different pieces of the armor of God, we must put them on. We must take them seriously. This battle is real. What do I want you to understand today? I want you to understand that spiritual warfare is not only happening in the government or in the internet or in the media. It is happening in your home. It is happening in your car. It is happening at your workplace. It is happening at school. It is happening in your mind. It's constant in one sense. Again, I'm not saying that they're omniscient or omnipresent, but these forces are clever, they're very powerful, and they are out to destroy as much as they can the image of God and God himself. The joyful thing is that we know who has won. But he calls us to this task, to live, it's strange, to live in victory. And yet that doesn't mean that we'll just somehow roll over and all everything magically takes care of itself. This is what it means to find our strength in God alone. These spiritual forces of darkness work with all their might to keep us from trusting God in everyday obedience. So as you go back today, probably guys, as, as we're walking down the hall and the thoughts that you have, as you get in the car, maybe as you're thinking right now, we're in the midst of it right now and the struggle is real. These spiritual forces are stronger than us. We cannot overcome them by ourselves. But as Paul has told us here, and we believe the truth, we need God, his strength alone. We need God to strengthen us for everyday trusting and obeying. We need God to outfit us with the right gear for this life as we be careful of the the shots and the landmines that we constantly go through. Our whole attitude must change. Engaging in this warfare does not mean doing something brave and different from what we've been called to do before. All the stuff that we've been called to in the last two and a half chapters is what he's calling us to do. My question then to you is, are you doing it in your own strength? I have to answer that so many times that I do it in my own strength. Uh, Martin Luther's words are appropriate here. In the second verse of A Mighty Fortress is Our God, he says this, Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. I love this. Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he, the Lord of hosts, his name from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. This is our great hope. 
We must obey the commands that Paul's given us in these last two and a half chapters. But the call today is to be strengthened by God for this task. He's showing us how to do it and to move forward in obedience in the strength of the Lord alone. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, you have given us all that we need. Your strength is what we desire and need, and so we ask that you would work in your body right now. Lord, I ask for true revival in our hearts that we would desire to do what is right and that you would empower us to do so. I ask, dear God, that you would help us to put on this armor, that we take the battle seriously, knowing that we cannot do it. We cannot do it. But Lord, in you, we can stand. We can withstand the devil and his schemes. So Lord, we, we worship you today, and we ask that all of our lives would, 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 be, would be looking at the truth of the gospel, that we need it not only for one time in our life, but Lord, as we put it on today and the next day and the next day, may we be strengthened in you and you alone. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For further sermons and more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.